Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When they attempted to move the drugs, customs swooped in, fearing the gang would break up and they'd miss their one opportunity to catch them red-handed. Typically, that meant letting Brian Wright, who was out of the country, slip through the net for the time being. But his son was arrested, along with Suarez and seven others. In the years that followed, 15 members of the organisation would be tried, convicted and sentenced to more than 200 years in jail. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. This is an extract from the new book Cocaine Cowboys, written and read by me, Nicola Talent. Chapter one, part two. First on the list was Johnny Morrissey a violent Manchester criminal suspected of gangland murder, money laundering and cocaine smuggling. He'd left England and set up shop in Kinsale in County Cork, where he splashed around cash, diamonds and jewellery, earning him the nickname Johnny Cash. Balding Morrissey had arrived in like a hurricane and snapped up a building just yards from the waterfront in the pretty fishing village and told locals he planned to open a restaurant there. Massive renovations followed, which were carried out by mainly UK workers. He poured buckets of money into his new venture. It was rumoured he spent at least £600,000 paying everyone from the painters to the plumbers to the serving staff in notes pulled from his bulging wallet. Known as a boisterous individual, he became a familiar figure around the town, giving generously to local charities and fundraisers and picking up bar tabs, which he'd often pay in sterling. He eventually opened the doors of his business venture, a high-end restaurant which he called the Annalise. At night, he worked the tables or drank in local bars, but by day he took to the seas in what Gardy suspected was his real business. When the fledgling cab made inquiries with Interpol about Morrissey, they set up a series of raids that found a handgun, half a kilo of cocaine, cash and Cartier jewellery. Officers believed that Morrissey had been using the jewellery to pay Russian criminals who were transporting cocaine into Europe and delivering it to the fishing enthusiast on the way. But Gardy couldn't get enough evidence for a case against him. 
an ocean-going rigid dinghy was, however, discovered along with commercial diving equipment, which could reach greater depths than normal subaqua gear, but they proved nothing alone. Morrissey was, at the time, closely associated with George the Penguin Mitchell, an entrepreneurial criminal based in Amsterdam, who had attempted to set up Ireland's first ecstasy-making factory before his plans were foiled. Mitchell had an entire wing of his operation based in Cork, where his sidekick, Alan Buckley, lived. Mitchell had also managed to make contacts directly with the Colombians and was fast adding cocaine to his list of products for wholesale in Ireland, the UK and Europe. Morrissey was incensed that Cab was out to ruin his fun and destroy what he had built up in Kinsale. In a plan to hit back, he put together a plot to murder Barry Galvin. With a reputation as a hitman for the gangsters in England, Cab took no chances with their man and Galvin was the first ever civilian to be issued with a firearm for his own protection. The Bureau foiled the murder plan and demanded £100,000 from Johnny Cash and froze another £500,000 of his assets. Morrissey eventually gave up the fight and walked away from the money and from Kinsale for good, and the cab turned their attentions on another of his contemporaries. The international criminal mastermind David Hook had been one of the first of the smugglers to see Ireland as a safe haven and moved from Ibiza to County Clare in 1988, buying a luxury home and moving part of his fortune to an Irish bank account. Just like Morrissey, he posed as a suave businessman and flashed his cash about. His big interest was in cannabis and as a criminal he had enjoyed quite a share of luck. He'd started with cigarettes but moved to hash after he realised how easy it was to buy it from the Moroccans and land the drugs from sea. In 1993, he just managed to escape when his yacht, the Brime, was stopped off the Kerry coast laden with hash and although he'd been arrested and questioned about the consignment, he had been released without charge. Hook had bought and refurbished the catch, which was due to meet another yacht off the Kerry coast travelling from Wales. The second boat had run into difficulty at Ballinskelligs Bay and had to pull into shore for repair, where eagle-eyed locals reported that the two men aboard were acting suspiciously. The duo had phoned Hook, who'd made his way down to the port just as Gardy boarded the Welsh vessel, on which they found a small quantity of drugs. While they were suspicious that there was a bigger plan afoot, they didn't realise the boat was due to meet the brime and divide its load. They had to let Hook go and he immediately left Ireland on a flight from Dublin to London. Later that day, the brime crew phoned a mobile that had been seized by Gardaí. The officer who answered the call kept his cool and the voice on the other end gave details of their location and made plans to meet up off Loop Head where they would switch the loads. They were met instead by the naval vessel, the Ellie Orla, and the operation was deemed a huge success despite the fact that Hook had got away. In his absence, the Bureau moved in to pick through his abandoned belongings, which included two houses and land. Not long after, Hook's legendary look finally ran out off the coast of Cornwall when British Customs nabbed him on board the Fata Morgana with £10 million worth of the drug. Mickey Green was another criminal superstar who decided to seek refuge in Ireland and while he'd fled by the time the Criminal Assets Bureau was set up, they immediately went about mopping up the substantial assets he'd left behind. 
Green had only been based in Ireland for a couple of years, but during that time he was suspected of identifying and funding routes for cocaine to be landed in the country. Thanks to his talent for disappearing, just as he was about to be captured, Green was dubbed the Pimpernel and would inspire movies and TV crime dramas for decades. One of the notorious Wembley mob, he'd built his reputation in armed and violent robberies and pulled off some of the most daring heists in British criminal history. But when the mob leader, Bertie Smalls, was given full immunity in return for giving damning evidence against his men, Green had found himself with an 18-year sentence. Green didn't even serve half that stretch in jail, and by the early 1980s he'd been released, reuniting with one of his Wembley mob pals, Ronnie Dark, the duo getting involved in an ingenious and highly lucrative VAT scam. It was one of the first ever rackets involving gold Krugerrand, South African coins that weigh exactly one ounce. Green and Dark flew vast amounts of Krugerrand, which were exempt from VAT, into Britain using a private jet. They then melted them down into gold ingots or bars and sold them to bullion houses, making sure to charge them VAT. In just six months, they made the equivalent of about €6 million today. It was a beautifully simple shakedown. Once rumbled, Green fled to the Costa del Sol in Spain, which still had no extradition treaty with the UK. And there he discovered the world of drug smuggling and, in particular, cocaine. Always quick to reinvent himself in the underworld of crime, he quickly became one of the leading figures in the burgeoning European narcotics trade. On the Costa, he lived it up with all the trappings of a cocaine kingpin, a luxury penthouse apartment, a white Rolls Royce, a red Porsche and the obligatory yacht. By the mid-1980s, he was worth tens of millions of pounds and had a collection of expensive cars and 11 yachts. Describing himself as a car dealer, he bought a huge villa on the outskirts of Marbella and became a part owner in a club on the harbour in Porta Benus, enjoying his status as a major player in full view of the authorities. But in 1987, his life of pleasure on the Spanish coast was seriously disrupted when he was arrested by Spanish police after they seized two tonnes of hash. Green got bail and fled to Morocco, leaving behind all his properties, cars and yachts. Within a few months, he popped up again, this time in Paris, where French police, after being alerted by Interpol, swooped on his apartment on the left bank. They found vast amounts of cocaine and gold bullion, but the Pimpernel had once again made his escape. A French court later sentenced him, in his absence, to 17 years for drug smuggling and possession. In 1993, Another court, this time in the Netherlands, handed him down a 20-year prison term for smuggling cannabis. But Green was happily based in California by then, where he was living in a rented Bel Air mansion. The DEA, trying to get a handle on the Colombian cartels, kept an eye on Green and watched as he met with key figures and negotiated big shipments. In 1994, he was linked to a one-ton shipment of cocaine worth £200 million, which was seized by customs at Birkenhead in Merseyside after being shipped from South America through Poland. The Americans eventually made their move and burst into Green's California mansion and an arrangement was brokered to send him to France, where he was set to start his 17-year prison sentence. But in an extraordinary sequence of events, 
Green was bundled on a plane for transport to Paris with his Irish passport tucked into his pocket and a master plan in his mind. When the plane stopped off at Shannon to refuel, he simply walked off and used his passport to waltz through customs and make his way to Dublin. In Ireland, pre-Google, he managed to settle into an anonymous, albeit high society life, posing as a wealthy retired English businessman with an interest in horse racing. In reality, he was successfully running cocaine across the Atlantic while using Ireland as his headquarters. He bought a house to match his persona. Maple Falls in County Meath was set on four acres of land and surrounded by high walls and trees. It was a huge stately manor measuring 5,500 square feet, complete with five bedrooms, three reception rooms, a sauna room, a snooker room and a heated indoor swimming pool. Outside, there were stables and an all-weather tennis court. For nights out in Dublin, he bought a two-bedroom luxury penthouse and became a regular in the Berkeley Court and Westbury Hotels, along with the celebrity favourite club, Lily's Bordellos. In his early 50s, he hooked up with a younger Irish woman, Anita, who would become his long-time partner. Green liked Ireland and reckoned it was a good location to run his empire and an easy place for his friends and family in the UK to come and visit him. Setting standards for the many big league cocaine dealers who would come up behind him, he tried to rub shoulders with politicians and business people by attending fundraisers and giving generously to charities. He loved nothing more than a big night out and it was after one of those soirees in April 1995 that life in Ireland changed for good. He'd been drinking and was driving his Bentley in the city centre when he smashed into a taxi. Instead of calling an ambulance, Green immediately fled the scene. But when he was caught by two guardi on patrol, he refused to give a urine sample to test if he was drunk. In the meantime, the fire brigade had responded to calls about the crash and it took 45 minutes to cut the taxi man and father of nine, Joe White, from his car. He died later in hospital from shock and severe blood loss. Green was charged with dangerous driving, but got two witnesses to lie about details of the crash. It emerged years later that Michael Michael, a drug baron and one-time head of a London-based criminal gang known as The Organisation, had linked him up with the witnesses and even travelled to Dublin to bail him out. In a case of crime pays, Green got a rap on the knuckles from the court and a £950 fine and Joe White's widow was left with nothing but a pension to raise her large family, never receiving a penny from his insurance company or from the gangster himself. Green, who was believed to have been worth more than £100 million at many points in his long career, never said sorry or offered to help them out. The outcome might have been a win, but it wasn't all good news for Green, and with his cover blown, he found he was no longer welcome among the horsey set. Any political ties to anyone of any influence were also quickly snipped, and then came the news that the IRA were sniffing around him, and rumours that the terrorists were possibly planning to kidnap him, to either demand a ransom from his girlfriend Anita, or to persuade him to cut them in on his drug-dealing action. Green didn't hang around to find out, and just like David Hook, he fled Ireland, leaving his properties behind for the cab to move in on. As the Bureau got busy with the criminals' proceeds of crime, 
Eamon Kelly's old foe, James Danger Byrne, was finally caught in the UK trying to smuggle cocaine worth 6.5 million sterling into Britain. At 51, Danger was older than the average cocaine dealer, as was his co-accused who was in his late 50s. Together with a Peruvian, they had done a deal with a gang based in the Andes and ordered 50 kilos of cocaine and devised what they believed was a foolproof plan to get it into Britain, which involved hiding it in timber bound for Estonia. At the time, Estonia was the biggest exporter of wood into Europe, so they wagered that if it came from there and not Peru, it would easily get through customs. However, they forgot to check the ship's log and didn't realise that its first stop was Felixstow in England and not Estonia. When the boat docked at the port, the timber did arouse suspicion, but only because of the zigzag route the boat was due to take. Customs officers examined the cargo and found the cocaine, but to discover who owned it, they had to be clever and let it continue on its journey as planned. It was only when it arrived back to the UK some weeks later, and when the trio showed up at the port for their timber, that officers moved in on their targets. In the years that followed, Byrne and his cohorts would face three trials before they were eventually found guilty and sentenced to huge jail terms. A year after Danger Byrne was nabbed trying to pick up his cocaine, John Conlon was finally back in Dublin to face the music for his role in the Eamon Kelly conspiracy to use human mules from Miami to carry drugs to Ireland. Conlon's address was given as Allison Road, Miami Beach, and his sentence was backdated to 1994 when he had been taken into custody in England and held for extradition. During his trial, then-Detective Superintendent Martin Callanan told the court that Conlon, a native of Westport in County Mayo and a father of three, had left Ireland in 1959 and owned properties in Miami, where he had lived for some years, and in Norfolk in England. He had no previous convictions. While in custody, he had contracted hepatitis C after picking up blood-stained clothes belonging to an infected fellow inmate who had cut his hand. Across the water, UK police were working hard to break up the 20-strong right mob, which they had discovered were the most powerful cocaine gang at the time, thanks to the shocking find on the sea mist. The right group was so big that the £50 million value of the cocaine they had lost in Cork had hardly affected them at all, not even causing a ripple in the operations. The human losses hadn't appeared to bother them either. A year after they were arrested on the boat, skipper Gordon Richards, three crew and his girlfriend had gone on trial in Cork. Richards pleaded guilty, but gave the court a window into the tentacles of the right organisation that stretched from the UK into Venezuela. Richards told the judge that he and his Venezuelan girlfriend, Teresa de Silva Roy, and her two-year-old son had made the journey which ended in Ireland because they were under threat from gun-toting South Americans working for right. He said that three months before the doomed trip, he'd been approached by people who offered him money to take the sea mist to France. He said he'd agreed after they told him that he wouldn't live if he didn't captain the ship. And he said he'd left Puerto de la Cruz in Venezuela and first stopped at Trinidad, where the boat was repaired. An aeroplane dropped the shit off while we were at sea. I knew it was contraband and was pretty sure it was cocaine, he admitted. In his statement, he said he'd received $6,000 for supplies and $1,000 for himself. 
initially telling Gardy that his girlfriend stowed away on board with the child, but in a letter to the judge claimed that he took them with him because he believed they were in danger. Richards told Justice A.G. Murphy that he had fallen on hard times and was to be paid $400,000 for the voyage. Crew members Roman Smollin, James Knoll and Graham Howard Miller were found not guilty by a jury, along with Mr. Silva Roy. During his appeal, further details about Richard's distressing story were heard, including the fact that he had no criminal history and had worked hard all his life as a boat builder. Brought up in the West Indies by relatives, Richard's, whose real name turned out to be John Ewart, had earned enough money to live a nice lifestyle. But when a hurricane struck, he said he'd lost everything. In prison in Ireland, he was working building model boats and selling them to prison officers. But his health was failing, the court was told, and he hadn't seen his girlfriend as she'd returned to South America. Richards, R. Ewart, had named Wright as the mastermind behind the plan and detailed the extent of his operation. Between 1996 and 1998 alone, it was estimated that the Wright Group had smuggled a staggering £300 million of cocaine across the Atlantic. Surveillance had identified Wright's most trusted allies, who were his son Brian, his pal Kevin Hanley, and the middleman, Brazilian, Ronnie Suarez. Just like the sea mist, officers believed that boats had picked up the drugs at sea and then sailed them over to the UK, docking at night and transferring their cargo to waiting vans. Boats like the Moonstreak, the Cyan, the Flex and the Lucky Irish were all identified by officers as having carried drugs worth about £50 million each. In 1998, a year after the Sea Mist crew were tried, undercover officers in the UK eventually got the break they needed when Hanley was arrested with cocaine in the boot of his car. Unaware, his every move was being watched. Wright called a meeting and booked into an expensive hotel. But Customs got there first and bugged the suite and photographed him on the balcony. Conversations about drug movements and money transfers were recorded, while undercover officers followed his key lieutenants to a farm where they were stashing almost 500 kilos of cocaine. When they attempted to move the drugs, Customs swooped in fearing the gang would break up and they'd miss their one opportunity to catch them red-handed. Typically, that meant letting Brian Wright, who was out of the country, slip through the net for the time being. But his son was arrested, along with Suarez and seven others. In the years that followed, 15 members of the organisation would be tried, convicted and sentenced to more than 200 years in jail. If 1996 was a significant year for criminals in Ireland with the establishment of the cab and the seizure of the cocaine on the sea mist, 1998 would prove to be quite the match, even down to another cocaine hole discovered on a boat that had to limp into harbour in Cork after engine difficulty. When customs officers started to search the 50-foot catamaran in Kinsale Harbour, they couldn't believe the amount of drugs on board. Wrapped in packaging and concealed beneath the bunks as well as under diesel tanks, they found a total of 320 kilos over the course of three different searches. Dubliner John O'Toole, in his early 50s, 
and with an address in Panama City, was the registered owner of the boat, and he was on board with an Englishman called Michael Tune, who lived in Tenerife. Both were arrested, while stories began to emerge about what had led customs to the catamaran. Some said that, just like sea mist, Gemios had failed to lift her flag. Others said that she had moored illegally. It was far more likely that it was an intelligent-led operation, with the information coming from UK Customs, who were dug right into the cocaine gangs at the time. But whatever the truth, the haul from the Gemius was enormous and police at one point valued it at £120 million, dropping to a more conservative estimated street value of £40 million, with 75% purity by the time the two were brought to court. O'Toole first told cops that they had sailed into Kinsale from Tenerife in the Canary Islands, but that they had come via the Azores to get better winds and it had taken them around 20 days. Charts told a different story and markings used by navigators to plot their course showed the ship had been 400 miles east of the Bahamas in the Caribbean just weeks before it reached Cork. Confronted with the evidence, O'Toole changed his story and told officers that he had taken the boat from his wife and had decided to sail it across the Atlantic to sell it in Europe. A court would later hear that customs officers had been alerted to the 50-foot catamaran by harbour master Captain Phil Devitt, who noticed the boat had anchored at a mooring belonging to another boat and had failed to pay harbour dues. A local man had towed it to the mooring with his speedboat after three crew on the Gemius signalled to him for help. Both men pleaded not guilty at Cork Circuit Criminal Court to five charges and the trial got underway in May 1999. O'Toole proved to be typical of the colourful characters that seemed to populate the cocaine trade during the 1980s and 1990s. During his trial, he got into the witness box usually an ill-advised move by anyone who's caught red-handed, and said he didn't approve of drug dealing and he didn't like people who dealt in narcotics. Born in Enniskerry in County Wicklow, he'd moved to Canada with his late wife Gabriella, who had cancer, he said, and who needed money for her treatment. But he'd fallen on hard times and someone had damaged another boat he'd used, leaving him with nothing except for the gemios and rising bills. It was a familiar tale, albeit Gabriella had actually passed away four days before the trial began. O'Toole said that he'd been introduced to a man in Panama, described as Mr X, who asked him to take drugs to Europe. I don't like drug dealers because of what they do. It's all mafiosa, gangs, killings and that sort of thing. I don't agree with it. It's just not in me. Drugs are totally wrong, he said. I was sort of shocked. I'd never been approached like that before. I refused point blank. Despite taking $5,000 to help with his wife's medical costs, he denied that he knew he'd be expected to do anything for the money. I made it plain that I didn't want to get involved. I never thought it would come to what it did. It was a nightmare. I thought at the time that he was genuinely sorry for me and my wife and he had money and he wanted to help, he said adding that he was beaten up in a car park in Panama City and forced to agree to the indecent proposal. The court, however, heard details of monthly payments of $5,000, amounting to more than $70,000 over the course of a year. He was also to be given 
$300,000 for the trip on the Gemius, less the $70,000 advance. The payday to ship a load of cocaine was tax-free and clearly tempting. O'Toole had once had a successful career in yacht chartering and in Tenerife, his wife worked in diplomatic circles and regularly brought in business. Their companies were very successful with a million pound turnover, but a series of tragedies, including the death of his brother Robert on board one of the yachts, his father's death and Gabriella's breast cancer followed in quick succession. Giving evidence, Detective Sergeant John Healy said he also believed that O'Toole came up against red tape and ran into difficulties with the Tenerife authorities. These problems revolved around regulations about the employment of locals, as well as increased competition in the yacht charter business. O'Toole's most prized yacht, the Shogun, was also destroyed by unknown persons, the officer told the court, and the family moved to Gabriella's native country of Panama, where the hospital treatment bills for her cancer cost thousands of dollars every month. O'Toole got to know the shadowy drug boss Mr X in a nightclub through contacts. Michael Chun was to receive £100,000 for his role in the enterprise and was hoping to use it to move to England with his girlfriend and their 18-month-old daughter. In a last-ditch effort to convince the judge to be lenient with O'Toole, counsel Blaise O'Carroll asked the court to listen to Gabriella from the grave through a letter she wrote to her husband while he was in prison. He also produced a letter from O'Toole's 13-year-old son, but the judge said that he had to put emotion aside. I have a function to send out a message to people involved in the drug world on behalf of society, he stated. Chun changed his plea to guilty towards the end of the trial, a smart move which got him a lesser sentence of 14 years for his role compared to the 20 years handed down to O'Toole. While a large seizure was always welcomed by police, there were gaps everywhere for ambitious dealers to move cocaine. And at the very heart of the trade lay poverty, ambition and a never-ending stream of drug mules willing to fill their stomachs or luggage with the drug. As the threat of cocaine escalated, Ireland and the UK decided to get together in a deal to clamp down on the couriers transporting the drugs and they agreed to swap names of suspected mules and work together to track boats and planes used to transport drugs. Irish Customs Director Frank Daly and Chair of HM Customs and Excise Dame Valerie Strachan signed an agreement at Dromoland Castle in County Clare in 1998 and by 1999 new legislation was brought in so those caught transporting drugs could face up to 11 years in prison. No doubt the objective was to convince the mules to think twice before taking a job and put the squeeze on the drug barons. But what resulted was a major headache for the Irish prison system. Mountjoy Jail had housed female criminals convicted of offences since it opened in 1858. But by the mid-1950s, the women's wing was given over to younger offenders and became St. Patrick's Institution. Since then, there had been only a small number of women incarcerated, but their numbers had been growing with the arrival of cocaine. And in 1999, a new female-only prison called the Doka Centre was opened. 
It was a campus-style prison, designed for twice the number of prisoners as the old basement, complete with an ethos for them to live as close to an ordinary life as possible. Each had a cell with their own bathroom, and inmates could clean, cook and launder their own clothes in seven separate houses that accommodated 10 to 12 in each, with a larger house called Cedar, where 18 inmates would live together. With their ensuite rooms and keys, the women could move about relatively easier and mothers were allowed to keep newborns with them until the children reached 12 months old, at which point they had to leave the prison. The centre offered training and educational programmes to inmates, including hairdressing and beauty therapy, photography and FETAC training programmes to equip them for life on the outside. The opening of the new facility was lauded as a bright new era in rehabilitation and compassion and it became a home from home for a large group of foreign prisoners who were there because of cocaine. They had been promised an escape from poverty but instead many had been caught working as pack mules to ferry drugs from their home countries, many of which were places of no opportunity. Behind the walls of the Docus, the women from Africa, South America and the Caribbean had few friends and virtually no visitors. But the then governor, John Lonergan, felt a lot of sympathy for them and so devised a way for them to feed their children back home. By carrying out prison work, many earned a small weekly wage, which they faithfully sent back to their families. Many never even told their loved ones they were in prison instead spinning a yarn that they were leading free and respectable lives in Ireland and earning good wages. Enclosed with the money was a note to their families telling them how good life was in Ireland, how their job in the hospital or the restaurant was paying well and how happy they were. In reality, they were on a work initiative in the jails, which allowed them to earn £33 for every 100 pairs of shoes they hand-sewed. For many, The work was the only thing that kept their double lives a secret from their loved ones. In an interview at the time, Governor Lonergan said, It's tragic, really. Most of them just saw drug smuggling as a quick way of making money. I suppose you could call them naive, but they are here now and for a lot of them, their families don't have a clue. Some of them send home every penny they earn. They ring home and say they're working in a hospital. They make the best of their lot. Growing numbers of the convicted drug mules meant they made up almost one in five of the female prison population in the year it opened. Brazilian Maria Emilia Bilibo, a 32-year-old artist, was the first to plead guilty to importing drugs under the new act. She had been caught trying to smuggle £2.5 million worth of cocaine through Dublin Airport. She had no previous convictions and was a good mother to her two children and the court heard it was out of the need to support her children that she agreed to carry the drugs. A dealer had offered her $35,000, along with $1,500 expenses, to take the flight to Ireland with the cocaine. She agreed, planning to return to Brazil to open a souvenir shop with the money. Instead, she was sentenced to seven years. As more and more of the couriers were processed through the court system, it was clear they were terrified of the repercussions in their home countries and most refused to name the dealers who promised them the fortune they had dreamed of. Governor Lonergan said that despite their crimes, the women deserved praise for their positive attitude and determination to make amends. 
They coped, he said, with isolation from their families, lack of friends and often a language barrier, yet worked into the evening sewing shoes. As the world prepared for a new millennium, cocaine worth £4.5 million was found in a warehouse in Dublin, hidden amid a cargo of bananas, accidentally sent onwards from Antwerp. 52 kilos of drugs were found in three boxes in the fruit which had originated in Colombia. Gardaí, who were called to the warehouse, believed that the drugs had been distributed in error. In a Europe of no borders, the free movement of goods was making it ever easier for the cartels to move their product. The cab may have run some of the key players out of Ireland and scattered them to the wind. Successful crackdowns and intelligence-led operations on major drug barons had seen many of them locked up, with their skippers serving long sentences behind bars. But cocaine production was heating up in Colombia, Venezuela and Peru, where political corruption was fueling a dangerous and growing trade and where poverty and desperation would facilitate a never-ending supply of workers. Undoubtedly, Cork and its coastline had featured heavily in the first decade of Ireland's love affair with cocaine, but there were bigger players eyeing up the huge ports of Europe, like Rotterdam and Antwerp, as an easier route for the drug. Believing it could be hidden in the massive shipments of bananas and coffee and other commodities making their way from South America. George, the Penguin Mitchell, was one of the first to have made serious contacts with suppliers from Colombia. He had a tight knit inner circle in Dublin, headed by his brother Paddy, partners in London and Liverpool, and a close association with a grouping known as the Cork Mafia, run by Edward Judd Scanlon and Alan Buckley. Scanlon from Bishopstown was a middle-class, privately educated and privileged type with a nose for trouble. He'd been first caught with drugs in the 1970s in New York and later in the UK in 1980, driving a lorry load of heroin from Turkey to England. He was eventually nabbed at Heathrow Airport with a woman carrying four ounces of heroin in her knickers and was landed back in jail. But Scanlon had been an early convert to the potential of cocaine and was on the radar of British customs throughout the 1980s. In Ireland, he was the focus of the Cork City Divisional Drugs Unit, not least for the flash way he lived his life, with a taste for designer clothes, fast cars and splashing his cash. Just like his pal Johnny Morrissey, Scanlon had tried to hide in the cosmopolitan foodie port of Kinsale, where he owned a restaurant and where his friends called him Giorgio because of his never-ending supply of Armani threads. In his arrogance, Scanlon had believed he was untouchable, despite a history of going to jail, and he had a tendency to be hands-on with his supply. Under surveillance in March 1997, he'd been seen handing a hold-all bag to a known Dublin drugs courier, And when he was stopped, he was found with ecstasy and cocaine. In court, the courier refused to identify Scanlon because, he said, he was threatened and feared for his family. But eyewitness evidence of their meeting and statements from senior drug detectives was enough to convince a jury of his guilt. In court, officers said that Scanlon was in the upper echelons of the drug trade and had been on their radar for 10 years. He presented himself to communities as a respectable businessman, all the while pushing cocaine and ecstasy into a willing southern market and dealing directly with Mitchell for his supply. 
Scanlon, renowned for his love of fine dining, was floored when he got 22 years, the heaviest drug sentence ever handed down to a criminal, and was refused leave to appeal. The crackdown on Scanlon, which was a joint effort by the Gardee and the cab, was ultimately focused on his boss and Cork Mafia godfather, Tommy O'Callaghan, a far rougher type who had introduced Mitchell to many of his associates, including the ex-Irish National Liberation Army gunman Tommy Savage. Feeling the heat, O'Callaghan had moved out to Europe and settled between Spain and the Netherlands after he'd been hit with a tax demand of £700,000 by the Bureau. His line manager, Alan Buckley, also sensed the impending doom and managed to leave Ireland just as Scanlon felt the full force of the law. Just like Mickey Green, Buckley had earned himself the nickname of the Pimpernel due to his incredible ability to get away with things. Another fast car driving Romeo, he'd based himself in the posh Cork town of Douglas for years, where he used an antique shop as his cover. When Gardy had targeted Mitchell's ecstasy factory, it was Buckley who was one of the key dealers under surveillance, but he'd cleverly slipped the net and couldn't be arrested at the time. After the crackdown, the mob regrouped, expanded and settled in as wholesalers in the two key European locations of the Netherlands and southern Spain. Buckley moved to Marbella, while Mitchell and O'Callaghan based themselves in Amsterdam. One of their enforcers, Michael Dancer Ahern, moved to Portugal, while Scanlon did time in jail in Ireland. In their new HQ, the group also began to do business with a newcomer on the international scene. Fresh out of jail from Ireland, Christy Kinnahan Sr. was making his presence and his ambition known in Amsterdam, where he was determined to take his place at the top table of organised crime. They would be perfectly placed in the years to come to take advantage of Europe's growing love affair with cocaine. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.